Hello, and welcome to the Speakeasy. Um, this is our inaugural episode, episode number one. Um, I'm your host, Arthur Kubin, and this is uh, the virtual audio space where readers and writers gather. Uh, in each episode, I'll be joined by a guest co-host, and together we're going to uh, chat and introduce you to um, some of the wonderful members from the writing community. Today, my uh, guest co-host is uh, a writer from Vancouver who is seeking literary representation. Uh, and she and I have known each other for ages. I'm just consulting my watch to uh, tell you how long it's been. I think um, we met um, through Twitter and the writing community sometime last summer, I think it was. Um, please say hello to Karen Savage. Hi, Karen. Hello. Hi there, happy to be here. Thank you, it's lovely to have you here. How are things going with you? Good, I uh, was able to get in a run this morning and a shower, I wrote a blog, I'm feeling ready to go here. Yes, I saw your blog post, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, so that's on my to-do. <laughs> How are things going with your, uh, with your new whip? Your working uh, it's going. It's going pretty well, I'm up to about 18, a uh, thousand words, but I mean, I'm aiming for 80. So yeah. I'm still in the infancy stage. Good. Feeling like it's getting uh, some foothold for you? Yeah, it's shaping up. I, um, I'm a pantser, so I kind of feel it out as I go, even though I know, um, like I plotted out some of it, like the twists and the ending, but the middle part is always the hardest part, so. Yeah, that's what I've been reading is everyone gets stuck in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> nobody wants a soggy, saggy middle, not a soggy bottom, but a saggy middle. <laughs> yeah. well, sounds great. All right, so it's uh, time to introduce our guest. Uh, our guest today is a, a British poet and an accidental novelist, according to her Twitter profile. Um, <laughs> please help me welcome Erin McConnell. Hi, Erin. Thank Hi. you for joining us. Hi, it's great to be here. It's nice to meet you both. Nice to meet you too. Where exactly are you in uh, Britain, Erin? I live in South Germany, but I'm originally from Oxford. So, oh, okay. You know, I'm one of those. I'm one of those refugees, Brexit refugee that went off to to find somewhere better. So yes, yeah, so I, I live not far from Stuttgart, near the mountains. Oh, amazing. Mm. Okay, how's your German? It's not bad. Right. <laughs> it's, it's not bad. No, it's, it's not bad. I've been here about six years. Um, if sometimes you, you I mean, it's the same everywhere. The, 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 there's, a, the, there's a high German and then there's a dialect and they mm. sort of rumble it at you and they sort of go, Ooh, and I'm like, mm, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> no idea what you just said. So then, no. <laughs> I always find in a second language that it's the teenagers and people who are, um, I guess more rural that are harder to understand for me because they use a lot more expressions and they they sometimes speak a little quicker. So it's not easy. No, mm. it's definitely not easy. It's interesting. Very interesting. So, what are you working on right now from a writing perspective? Um, oh, uh, I'm I was laughing when you said pencil because I do exactly the same thing, but I actually ah. have. I have a ridiculous amount of whips on the go at any one time. And it's just, it's just <laughs> embarrassing. If anybody saw my Atticus, they would just they would just shake their head at me. Um, I, <laughs> I'm finalizing two poetry collections for this year, which are pretty much finished. So that's uh, Masquerade Me and uh, Death by Sugar. They are pretty much done. And I'm writing 
Oh, it's just, oh, it's, it's awful to think about it. So, oh, no. I'm writing, I'm, I'm about 13,000, no, about 18,000 words into my novel, my second novel, which is The Black Cat Bookshop, which is a gothic horror about a sentient feral bookshop. It's quite, it's quite fun, actually. <laughs> it's quite different <laughs> from the last book. And I'm also writing a second uh, novelette. Novelette? Is it novelette or novel? I don't know. Novella? Novella. Novella. And the shorter one is a little, some, that, well, that one. And it's, um, that's a dy it's in a dystopian sci-fi world. And it's from the point of view of one of the prisoners on Wasted. So that's that's quite good. And oh. then I'm also writing the Sunrise Sovereign, which is the second dragon novel. Wow. Because I'm just mad. You are. It's just, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> you've got a lot on the go. And you've <laughs> yeah. you've just released yesterday the uh Sunset released Sovereign. Yesterday. Congratulations. It's out yeah. in the wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The dragons are actually out in the wild and people are actually reading it. Very, very exciting. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I so was... do you I'm curious, do you actually read your reviews? And if so, I how do. do you Okay. So I how do you do. deal with it if they're really bad? Hopefully they're not really bad, but how would you deal with it if they were or really, really good? How do you feel? I uh, well, either way. I mean, if they're really, really bad. I mean, I'm a, I'm a teacher by trade, so I'm used to criticism, and you have to take it on the chin. And as yeah. a rule, with with any criticism, I read it, I sulk, I disagree, I sulk, <laughs> I read it again and think, mm, maybe they're right. I sulk, I read it again and think, yeah, they're right, and then I go and learn from it. <laughs> but criticism is really useful. It tells you something. I mean, this whole, oh, I loved it. What does that do for you? Oh, that's great. That's nice. It doesn't teach you anything about how to write the next novel. <laughs> so that's a really good approach. I. I, I think I have the exact same reaction where I go through these stages of denial when it comes to constructive criticism. First, it's like, you don't understand genius. Yeah, first it's like anger and then it's denial and then it's like, it slowly gets to acceptance. It's the self pity. I'll like, never right. write again. They understand right. that I'm young. Yes, the drama. And there's a fair amount of sulking over here as well. So you're not alone on that. But it, it, is, it is more useful to get the constructive criticism um, than just the I loved it uh, I also love when I get good like uh, a good crit but it's specific where they say why they loved it right yeah when they get really into the into it I, I have one from the Sunset Sovereign from yeah from Sunset Sovereign and she's very much like well I want to know what happened to Aiden and what about this and what, and, and what and I'm like this is amazing it's like this stream of consciousness review where she's still in there saying you've left me hanging what's gonna happen it's, that's perfect Oh, that's really like that's, like that. an that's priceless reader yes right. sorry go ahead you were yes. gonna say no i was saying i was gonna say finding out what your reader is thinking in that moment is so priceless i always try to ask my beta readers when they're reading uh what are you wondering about what are you worried about and what are you expecting I find those questions, I stole them from Stephen James, actually, I love him. <laughs> but I find those questions get me a good answer as to what the reader is thinking about while they're reading me. I love that. Yeah. It's also it a good a prompt, I think, for a reader to go in and not be just immersed in the situation without casting a critical eye. <clears throat> critical not being finding fault, but reading with intention. Yes. So because I think... we are supposed to be just reading to enjoy. It's not 
and not everybody has to be a literary critic. Not everybody has to say the whole, oh, well, the form of this follow it doesn't have to be that way. I just, I liked it. It was good. I enjoyed it. It was a good read with a cover. Yeah, why not? That's, yeah, just as valid. It is. It doesn't help us as writers, but it's just as valid for a reviewer. That's that's what they want to write. That's, that's, they enjoyed it. Great. That's we achieved it. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about why you uh, described yourself as an accidental <laughs> novelist. How did how did that come to be? I seem to have, it seems to become, it's become a motif, I think, in my life that all of the things I say I'm never going to be, I will become. Um, it's, it's just ridiculous and, and actually I actually said when I was a child I was going to be an author and then I was talked out of by my parents because obviously they point, it's no job it's no job in it and I was always very I was I admit I was very disdainful of people who wanted to go into hairdressing I had this idea of women had perms and the fancy nails and then I finished college I was wayward for a while and I ended up signing up as an apprentice with that so soon and I became a hairdresser yeah. so, okay <laughs> and I'd always said I never want to be a teacher I don't like the idea I don't want to teach I don't like the idea of being in schools and then I became a teacher so it's like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> hopefully so, you never um, say I don't want to be a murderer <laughs> yeah that would be I mean yeah that would be, I actually did teach in prisons for five years so I got near it but I, <laughs> but I, I didn't when I went to university I studied creative writing and I studied poetry which I've been writing since I was 16 and I and playwriting which I really really enjoyed and that was where I wanted to be I did have no interest in being a novelist I did not think I had a story I did not think I would want to do that it just it just didn't fit who I thought I was and then I started writing a couple of short stories um for Smaugust and um, Smaugust is um a load of prompts in August I say Smaugust August and there's 31 prompts and artists draw from the prompts and so some of the writers some of the fan fiction writers get in there and they start writing as well and I wrote uh, a couple of prompts one of them was a steampunk prompt and it was like this isn't just a short story is it it's going to be something else and then it just continued to spiral and then I picked up the cover for Sunset Sovereign I haven't finished the dragon story yet, the other one I'm still working on it but I picked up this one and thought oh that'll be a novella I can write a short novella it isn't and I got stuck in a sticky middle with my writing coach and she's there saying, Aaron, this is not a novella. This is a book. And I'm no, 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 no. She said, it is. And it's actually a series. I'm sorry, but it is. And she was, she was right. So that was how it happened. And so it's, yeah, accidental novelist. I didn't actually intend to become a novelist. And then suddenly I am one. And I'm a bit like, okay, it's, it's, it's interesting. Hmm. I don't know how that happened. I am. <laughs> Sounds like you were a reluctant novelist. I think I am. Kind of I think yes. <laughs> yes, I think so. I'm still in that little bit of a twitch. So when people say, I say I'm a poet, and is it and a novelist? Yes. <laughs> I remember one of your comments where you'd said you're you're stuck with these sovereigns, and you <laughs> you sounded almost disappointed that you had a trilogy on your hands. It's going to be four books. It's not oh, even going there to be a trilogy. Go, four. It's four books. It's just ridiculous. It's because I was started to write on the next one, and then I realized there was so much I was trying to force in an exposition of what's already happened that I have to actually just write what happens. So it's now four books. Ridiculous. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm going to be stuck with them forever. I mean, there are worse things <laughs> that with and a load of dragons, but it is like, wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious because I write one thing at a time generally. And I kind of immerse myself and I focus on that one work in progress. How do you switch gears? If you have like four different works going on, 
I mean, I do read, I read more than one book at a time. Is it, is it similar to that for you? You're like, okay, I just need a palette refresher. So I'm going to go yes. to my poetry or I'm stuck yes. on this point. So I'm going to switch to this. Yes, I think it is. I think I I can't do just one bit. Uh, it, it, I get completely stultified by it and I don't know where I'm going at all. Hmm. But I need something, it needs to be shorter or a different genre. So I couldn't write two or three fantasy novels at the same time. It just wouldn't work. Right. Um, yeah, it just wouldn't work. Poetry, poetry is a different, poetry is a different brain rate. That just, that just flows. Poetry is more like music. It just, it just comes out whenever it feels like it. And it's not really, you can't really sit down and I can't sit down and just write poems. I can sit down and write a thousand words. Mm. Um, but yeah, I need to, I always need to have a short one and then something longer. I, I can then switch between the two. And I usually have to have, if it's female characters in one, then it's male characters in the other to, to have that palette cleanse networks. Mm. Interesting. I like that idea. I do the same when I'm reading. I, I don't read the same type of book because I get, I get mixed up between the two. Um, for, I'm curious about when you're writing male characters, because as a woman, and often maybe you can mm -hmm. speak as a man writing a female character, I find it hard sometimes to kind of get in the mindset. I know we're all people, um, you know, there's a lot of common ground there, but I've been, I, my second novel I wrote from a male point of view for one of the point of view characters, and I found that voice the hardest to get. Um, how about you? Do, you? do you struggle with writing from a male perspective? I'm wondering if, if, as a fantasy writer, it's easier because I, I would say, I, I think it is changing, but I would say that certainly in my formative years, the majority of my fantasy I, re I read was a male character, hmm. which I think is more unusual than other genres where it's a bit more mixed or more female. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't I don't really think about the characters. They just they just write what they write. And it seems to be it seems to, but yeah, that's not very technical, is it really? I don't I don't yeah, like I, I just answer though. It is and it's highly pants. Right. They just say what they say and I just write mm -hmm. it down. I say, okay, that's if that's what what's the yeah, then fine, that's what we say. And I don't really think much about it. Um yeah, I, I I I would really struggle with trying to think about what is it, what's a manly thing of saying. Also, if I started to do that, I would be really stumped. Hmm. I don't I don't know what what what's a, what is a manly thing to say. How is it? And it's yeah the same. It just I just write them and it seems to work out all right. But but I do try to be more conscious with writing characters that yeah any like I'm writing a deaf character at the moment, so I'm doing a lot of thinking and researching about what's it like to be deaf because I'd have no clue so in that sense yes but I don't I just write them when they when it's a man and it just just comes out man-shaped I suppose man-shaped <laughs> I love that how about you offer when you're writing from a female perspective or if you're writing from I, I am actually uh both of my whips right now seem to feature um the majority of female characters or at least a strong female lead um which I find interesting um the the whip the main whip that I'd started with was uh, or is science fiction piece, and it was the first bit of writing I started or creative writing that I started to do after about seventeen years of not writing anything. So it was just um, letting again, just like Aaron said, just letting the characters come to life and letting the voices speak. And I think for me, I, I'm trying most of all to just stay away from stereotypicity or stereotypicity, if that's a word, um, just to stay away from something that, 
stereotypes that that speak in a certain way or that we we see um, too many tropes of. I'm trying to keep that in the forefront as I write so that they come across more natural and less um, constructed. Hmm. So, uh, so far, so good, I think. Uh, I guess it'll yeah. be able to tell once everything is pulled together whether or not I managed to carry the voice off correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I find maybe maybe I'm just being too hard on myself. My my husband, when he reads my work, um, the, the male point of view, it's in a, it's in a romantic uh, situation. So he's, he's sometimes giving me the feedback of like, men don't think like that, or men would, I would never notice that, you know, like he's, he told me, I actually once literally spent two hours with a woman and did not notice that she was wearing a wedding ring. <laughs> he's like, he wouldn't look at that. <laughs> um, but I, I have read work from men that uh, is writing from a female perspective. And I've, I've said, Ooh, no, a woman would definitely, there was this one guy who who wrote a scene it was a meet cute scene where a woman got into the wrong uh, car by accident she thought it was her uber and sh she never once in the scene thought oh no i could be in danger here mm -hmm. um and he just never it just never occurred to him because you know he's a guy he doesn't have to think about stuff like that so i think it, it can happen where being a different gender can kind of uh make you blind to certain things absolutely um, i would think so I guess that's part of being um, aware of what the what the conversation is out there about what life is like as a woman and and what life is like as a man and trying to absorb those details and those cues so that you can translate that into a more realistic representation of a character. But it's it's always a it's always a process. It's always a process. It does sound like it could be harder though for romance because you are leading from that emotional element and the conditioning whereas for fantasy and sci-fi we don't have to consider those things mm -hmm. there's no there's no element of oh well you know like say i have to think about my safety and there's no in fantasy why would we it's just we just do what we're doing and they just go in and do their thing i think it's more f focused on that action and the outcome whereas for romance it's much more it's much more in your head isn't it that things are going on so it probably does affect it more actually yeah it's possible I'm curious about how you came up with your ideas for the dragon world that you built. Kind of dream about it. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I had, yeah, but it wasn't entirely what it is now. Um, it was actually a dream. I had a dream that was the strangest dream. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm off because you're going to have some spoilers now. Uh, it was a strangest dream where there was basically this young girl who was having to act as an advocate for a prisoner. And there were people that um, were observing her. And it, it was very much like a sort of like an equilibrium sort of environment where everybody was expected to be very, very cerebral, very calm, very logical and analytical. And, and she was looking at this child, this girl couldn't read and she was trying to represent her. And this is a child representing a child who is on trial. And, and she kept saying, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is, shouldn't be happening. This is, she's just, she's just a kid. She can't read. And more and more she was, butting up against these analysts and the analysts like well this is just tough and and it almost felt like she was going to fail and then they executed this child in the dream it was such a strange dream 
And then they actually took this girl and they basically changed her and said, right, this you're exactly the material we want. You're we're changing. And I woke up for what on earth? But it kept it stayed with me. And I thought that's that's the beginning of a story. That's that's a story. And I started writing it as the analyst and it just there wasn't enough there. And I, and I had to put it aside, and I, I, and I knew it was something, but I just didn't have enough of it. And then when I picked up the the, the, the title of the Sunset Sovereign, I read it, saw it somewhere. It just all came together. The dragons came in, and it was like, oh, 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 let me get that bit, and it went right in the middle, and it just <laughs> it just worked. That's well, so cool. There we go. Yeah, a little bit disorganized. <laughs> I think writing is messy, right? When you're creating, it's always a a challenge to be able to pull ideas together that evolve into new things and making room for that is always exciting, I think. Oh, I completely agree. <laughs> yes, and I think that's what I like about pantsing is letting your imagination run wild a bit. Um, when you're just letting things out, it's amazing what comes out um, if you're in a creative mood. It sounds like we're all three of us are pantsers, which is quite a nice change because we. It <laughs> seems, what I'm seeing when when people have the discourse about the writing, it seems to be the plotters are very much like I am the architect of my world. Any concept that they're going to do, anything that I've said is is just complete bunkum and it doesn't happen and it's all very woo. And the pantsers are like, that's great for you, but that's what ours do. We just narrate what they tell us to do, and they're doing their thing. And it seems to be a really really huge difference. It's not just a or we do it this way, it's, it seems to be an entirely different mindset for how that novel is, is produced. Very, very different. Brain. Yes, I find it very interesting. I tried to do a bit more plotting with my second uh, novel and it just did not work for me. I kept trying to make my characters make decisions that made no sense so that I could get to the plot that I wanted. But then once I got there, I thought she would not do this because this is she's got this, uh, this background or she's got this personality type. So I can't force her to do something where the reader is going to think why on earth would she go down to the basement with the flashlight you know that moment where you're like the plot has to go on so she needs to you know do something dangerous now that makes no sense <laughs> but the the trick with pantsing is sometimes we can get um and you know feel free to disagree um i think we can sometimes get into circles and um maybe we don't uh, our, our plot doesn't advance as much or as well uh, as uh, if you're a plotter. Um, so that's why I'm kind of a planter now. I'm kind of a hybrid. I, I'm working towards something, but I'm letting my imagination figure it out. Um, but yeah, I'm open to your thoughts on it. No, I think that does work. I think I think part of the problem with with pantsing is that because it's such an organic story, we don't really see the beginning or the end. It, we just get in the middle of it and we're carrying on. So it's that sort of well, where do you slice off, especially for a series? Where do you stop? Because the story just keeps going, and you've got more of the story because they've told you more. So I think that's a problem. Whereas, of course, if you're planning, it's like you've got especially if you've got like a three-act structure you're using you've got this you've got the critical incident you've got the aftermath you've got the the, the the resolution and then it's a nice okay there we go neat little bow and it's all finished and send it off and we're like but is, is this happening and then this and yeah it, it does become sort of a bit tangled i think in that sense we, we we can't really we don't really know where to stop because they they've got their own life and they're carrying on that's right <laughs> and in many ways they keep talking after we close the the story up, whether it's a single book or an, or a series, there's there's life afterwards, which I kind of like to imagine happens um, as a sensibility to keep things moving on so it doesn't just end, you know, the, 
and edge of the world falls away and then nothing else happens after that. Yeah, mm. yeah they do keep going. Well, that's an interesting thought. I, I remember my mentor told me that because um, my second book, uh, I'd worked with a mentor. I was lucky enough. And uh, he told me to cut the last 20 pages of my book, <laughs> which was one of those constructive criticism moments where I went through all the grief stages. <laughs> but he was right. And um, he told me, you're tying things up too neatly. Mm-hmm. I want your reader to keep thinking and wondering about your character after they're done reading your book. That's beautiful. I like that. Did it make, did it make it feel uh, stronger for you overall once you did that? It did. Yes. I fought it at first in my head, but once it was gone, I didn't miss it. I, I sometimes go, I have this little word document where I throw things that I've you know, rejected. <laughs> and I sometimes go in and try and cannibalize it for, you know, a description or a turn of phrase or a type of character. But yeah, mostly once it's gone, it's gone. Nice. How about you, Erin? And do you, as a, pants, a pantser, do you have to cut a fair amount of your work? No, um, I don't. I, I'm, I don't at all. I have to, when my, when the Sunset Sovereign came back from the developmental editor, he actually suggested I had about four or 5,000 words to um, here and there to expand a few scenes but no I, I I tend to be fairly spare with my writing it doesn't seem to I don't I don't know if it's because of writing dissertations and such like I've just got to the point where I'm really economical with it and it's just it's done so I can't cut but I do I do tend to I think it's something from the playwriting I start a scene late and I end it early so I I go straight in and things are happening there's none of that oh so this is what's going to happen before it no, no, it, we were in there and you can catch up with me as you go. And yeah, I love early. that. I love that. I try to do that too. Um, cut out all the boring bits, as Stephen oh, yeah. would say. <laughs> I start, let, start the scene, finish it early. That's well, for, for my opening draft, usually my first draft comes out very quickly, usually, and it's usually short. Um, I have to go in later and add more description, more, it's kind of outlining. My first drafts are usually around between 30 and 50,000 uh, words, and I'm always aiming for between 80 and 90. So is that the same for you? I edit as I go. Um, so I read, I write this, I always think of it in scenes rather than chapters. I write the scene, I the next day I go back to it, I read the scene, I do a light edit, and then I write the next scene. And then when I, when it's all finished, I run through to see what I'm missing in between or add scenes in that I need that I know need to be put in between and then that's that tends to be I tend to send it straight off to the editor then oh wow okay that's really fast for a pantser good for you (laughs) yeah if it's done it's done and then obviously they look at it and they tell me what I need to add and then and then then I just crack on so yeah I think Sunset Sovereign took me six months to write which I don't know if that's fast or not it was that's what it was it's pretty fast how about you offer what sorry what's that I said that's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Offer? What's your process like? My process has been um, stilted, I think. Um, I mean, I'm still feeling very much a, a newbie at getting back to to the whole writing craft again. So I'm finding my way as I, as I go um, in trying to find or, or develop some kind of a process. Uh, I know that I draft very slowly at times. I had a, I had a really good run when I started my first drafts of my science fiction uh, work in progress. Um, and then 
uh, took a long break because I, I was writing it sort of as an aside. I initially started with a short story and uh, it kept going and I couldn't figure out where to stop it. So then I thought, oh, let's make it episodic. So I wrote it as five episodes. And then the more I started looking at it, I thought, no, there's probably a book here. <laughs> so now I'm looking at going back and rewriting everything as a novel. And I'm just finding that everything got quite slow for me to kind of get into the headspace of, of jumping back in. Mm -hmm. And then of course, now there's a new whip on the table that's asking for my attention that again started as a short story idea that that just looked like oh my goodness this is bigger than I thought it could be so that's kind of where I'm at I'm 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 writing tremendously in my head but I'm having a challenge getting it down on paper so there's not much of a process at this point mm -hmm. well I mean I think it's good to think through your scenes first and mm -hmm. I usually play it in my head like a movie before I write it and I often talk out the dialogue. Um, yeah. My my neighbors probably think I'm insane because I'm out jogging and talking to myself, <laughs> having conversations. First, we're coming. I wanted to find out if, when you're writing, that you have any thought around the reader, what the reader should take away from what you're what you're writing. Oh, um. I don't know, actually. Um, with yeah, I mean, with the dystopian one, I had a very clear idea of whether somebody should be looking at it and seeing whether how do I put it? With the dystopian ones, every character feels that they're the good person, and really, every single character is not. Of course, nobody's perfect and, and, and all good but I really wanted each time because there's a three of them interconnected I wanted the person I put the reader to read the first one like, oh yeah they're totally the, that they're totally in the right and then read the next one but oh maybe they weren't and I'd like that sort of question to be risen all the time but past that I don't know I don't know if I've not I don't know if I have thought of it too much with the dragon one I'm not sure mm. how about you Karen oh Sorry. Um, well, I was going to say, Erin, I love uh, works that explore ethical dilemmas. Mm -hmm. I find that gray space of who's right and who's wrong. And when you give a character a choice between two things that they believe strongly, that's when a work really captures my attention. So it sounds like um, <clears throat> you're, uh, for me, you're on the right track as a reader. Um, mm -hmm. I definitely try to do that myself. Um, my current uh, work in progress it's funny, I, I tend to have an idea of what I think I'm writing about when I start it. And then when I'm done, I realize, oh, actually, um, this is about, you know, the friends they made along the way or <laughs> whatever, whatever the means. So, uh, for example, my second book, The Service, I was writing about an ethical dilemma in terms of an unethical matchmaking uh, uh, business that uses spy techniques to set up uh, romantic couples. But in the end, the overall theme of that book is about finding your independence, finding the courage to break away from uh, societal expectations and kind of uh, go your own path. So I think sometimes as pantsers, it can surprise us what we uh, wind up saying that we didn't think we would be. Yeah, I do think there can be lessons that people take. And I think that's always interesting. Um, I remember it with one of my fan fictions because I've done a lot of Middle Earth fan fiction. 
Um, mm. one, of the, one of my readers, she, she turned around and said there was a load of bits and pieces in with one of the characters that said, and she said she really felt it spoke to her personally. And I was what, what did I say? And I read it and I thought, oh, that was really wise. That wasn't from me, clearly. But, but yeah, I, and she really got it. And it was very much a case of about how, it was It was a specific situation where the, the character was seeking redemption because he uh, had loved this person who didn't love him back. And the, mm. she was basically saying, if you, if you try to force somebody to love you back, then it's poisoned from the start and it doesn't work. Mm. And, but yeah, she really took it and said, this really spoke to me on a life level. And I'm thinking, wow, then, then great. It's mm -hmm. quite humbling, I suppose. That was nice. That is that is fantastic. I'd love I'd love to have a reader who takes away stuff that you didn't even realize was in there, and then you, once you you see it, you see what they're saying. I haven't published much yet. I've only published one short story, so um, I know for me, like writing is a very vulnerable experience where you're putting a lot of yourself into it. Um, you're exposing a lot of your your thoughts in your life, even if it's in a fantasy context or, you know, it's not reality based. Do you feel that way too? And how do you cope with having it out in the world and people reading it? I think it helps me because I'm a poet. Um, okay. So I already expose myself, so to speak, with poetry. Um, mm. So it helps, although, yeah, I do see it with books. Although I think we, we don't, I don't, there's no self insert. There's always going to be elements of myself in there uh, that I see. And I often want, actually, most of the time, I don't want, I don't know if I want people to like that bit or not. It's always quite nice when <laughs> they say, oh, that person's just a man. And I think, oh, yay, thank you. But I, and I recognize that element in me that, that's in them. But yeah, because I have the poetry, it, it does help because it's that when you write it, it's very raw and real and you poetry and fiction but then as you start the process of editing and you give it to your alpha readers you give it to the editor it starts becoming less yours somebody else is taking things from it because it's not just about the writing of it it, it becomes its own animal because people are, are, are interpreting it as they see fit and you can't say no you can't interpret it that way you have to interpret it this way and so it, it becomes less yours so by the time particularly my poetry um by the time it goes out there it doesn't feel like mine anymore. And I see other people owning poems and saying, that spoke to me. That's my life right there. And it doesn't feel autobiographical anymore. It feels like it's it belongs to them. Mm. So it's a lot easier, that sort of process of going out. Mm. Well, that's good to know. I, I, I'm looking forward to hopefully having that experience one day. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your poetry, Erin. I know you've, right. you've had a busy a busy year of releases and your most recent poetry collection the ptsd as a four-letter yeah. word is yeah. uh, intriguing how did uh, how did that all come together it's actually here we are it's actually very very different from other ones though this ptsd is a four-letter word i'm actually quite proud of that it's quite nice how did this one come about um i was this one began um because there were a number of poems that, that I chose not to put in of Swans of Stars. I thought it, they were too dark. Um, it was just too much of me in there and I didn't feel I wanted to put that out into the world. And in fact, I didn't, I, I this is something I was very reluctant to do. It was another one of those things I was not going to do, actually. <laughs> I wasn't going to talk about mental health. I did not want to be a, an advocate for mental health. I did not want to be the 
the one of those people who writes autobiographically about poetry. I wanted to write about dragons and beautiful things and, and not that. Um, but I, what I noticed is that um, there is a lot of poetry about mental health, but it's usually anxiety or depression. It's not the, it's not the other stuff. Um, and so it, it, was, it came to me that I thought, actually, somebody has to write about it. Somebody's got to write about what living with PTSD is like. And it clearly has to be me. So that's what happened. Um, but it was a it was a difficult one to release. This one it was. I was considering releasing it in June because I knew I, I always write poetry like the year before, and I already always have it prepared for the next year. And I was, and then I thought I'm just going to get the damn thing out. Um, but the editing it was just. It was very much like a labour of sorts. It was just. Oh, it was it was like reading through, uh, just doing the editing, but it was that processing. The poetry, processing experiences, thinking this is actually going to go out in the world. People are actually going to read this, and it was a really, it was a really difficult one to write. Um, not so much to publish. It was like, okay, it's done, it's done. <laughs> I don't have to think about any. It's big because this one's got trigger warnings in, obviously. So I've put in it the, the trigger warnings. We've got yeah, assault, sexual assault, mental health, sexual harassment, domestic violence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it was like, this is really not pretty. So it was like one I was really quite worried about publishing. I really, I really quite was. But it seems to be people seem to be enjoy, enjoying it. Isn't, and yeah, people seem to be enjoying it. But I did see a review because I read them um, of um, and it was somebody that I don't know. Who, a woman, I think she bought it for her boyfriend because he has PTSD, and he read it all in one evening. And he literally just sat there saying, "This is me. This is me. This is me." And he said, "You have to read this." And they read it together. And she said she read it so that she could understand him better. And he said that he'd never felt seen. My hair's actually standing on end thinking about it. He actually hadn't have felt seen before reading it. And he was said that somebody else see, sees the world like I do. And that was actually okay. Then, then it's then I'm it was worth it. It was worth doing. But yeah, mm. it wasn't. Still a bit like, oh, the one. Oh no. <laughs> I'm going back to pretty ones again now. <laughs> I don't have to think about it. But yeah, that was an interesting one to put to do. Yeah, it's powerful stuff when you go with something like that. And I think for for me certainly, um, reading poetry is has been an up and down experience. Um, I've been away from reading poetry for a long time, and sometimes it's hard for me to know what the message is or how I'm supposed to interpret it. Um, because I'm not, I think it's my my own brain isn't in the right headspace um, to just extract whatever's there as opposed to looking for something that I think should be there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this, I think there's a real difficulty of poetry. I mean, I, I studied poetry at university. I studied critic, you know, literature. And I think poetry is changing. Um, but you know, obviously, we've got Caroline Duffy, who was she's actually my creative writing student, and she was poet laureate, and she produces this beautiful poetry that's not so dense. It's not that sort of you don't have to sit and look at it and say, so so what is the the, the meaning of the image of this? Of it doesn't have to be that way. Sometimes it just has to be really just straightforward. And I think people like Rupi Kaur, who I know people really malign, which I think is a shame. Um, puts it out there as this really simple poetry and it's just so delivered with this raw impact. And you don't have to sit down and and, and just dissect it over a, a glass of Chardonnay. You can just read it and say, okay, that was that makes sense. And I think that's really I think it's really important. I see a lot of people doing the whole, especially university poets, 
God help them. Oh, we should always, it's, they're just such snobs. They really are. They're such snobs. And it's always this thing of, oh, people just don't understand poetry. They shouldn't be, they, people shouldn't be allowed to touch their grubby paws all over our poetry because it's so important. And I just say, and, and my answer is always, I want to see people writing haiku at bus stops. And I want to see people writing sonnets on backs of receipts. And they're just like, oh, the horror. As they clutch their pearls because poetry <laughs> should not be for everybody. It should. And I think that's the thing. And I know there's a lot of poets who do that. They make it so dense. You can't understand a word of what they're saying. And I have some here. I'm not going to show them to you. I'm not going to name and shame them. And I'm reading it and I'm thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. What is this supposed to mean? And it's such a... It's such a shame, you know. You, you Do you find so that that kind of that kind of density in writing is more reflective of the fact that maybe the poet themselves isn't really sure of what they're trying to say? Yeah, there's a lot of emerging poets who do not have a voice um, because they're trying to be like somebody else that they admire. Um, so you see it a lot with obviously with Ruby Cord, a lot of people copy her formats and not realizing she doesn't write with capitals because she writes because her original language is Punjabi, so and they don't have capital letters. So all of her poetry is without capital letters to reflect her heritage, which I think is beautiful. And a lot of people see it and they say, oh yeah, this is a new thing. We're gonna write without capitals. And you've missed a point. But mm -hmm. they, they, they haven't, they're losing their own voice. And, and I think a lot of poets do that, that they're trying to jumble everything in and they say, oh, I like um, William Blake, or I love Coleridge, or I love bloody blah, blah. And so I'm gonna stick it all in and throw it all in together. And I'm gonna, and it, it's just, it's it's just this cocktail of too many things and their voice is gone. They've lost mm -hmm. it. They don't know what they are. Bit so, of yeah. a, a blender approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's the same for any kind of writing, but I, I suspect with, poetry you see it more um, commonly where a writer is focused on sort of the language or the you know trying to play with words instead of creating emotion or trying to get a point uh, across yes. um, so building meaning instead of building language uh, yeah. it's supposed to make you feel something maybe it doesn't make the you best feel something poetry does, yeah it's pointless yeah, the same with writing a book. Yeah, to me, I think um, there's some books that are considered sort of masterpieces that are so um, dense and James Joyce. Oh. I oh my gosh, Ulysses! Like, don't even yes. get me started. <laughs> like, I it's tried impossible. to read this book. We I studied it, you know, briefly in uh, university, and I was just like, what is the point of this? Like, what? <laughs> why why did I get writing as a, a writing exercise fair enough but um I just don't I didn't I didn't connect with it so that's not for the reader that book <laughs> it's for somebody yeah. but it's not for the reader <laughs> yeah definitely but I'd agree with you I think I think that's the thing and I do th I think it is starting to change we are seeing more and more poets that are becoming less opaque some still aren't um, but they're becoming less opaque. And I think that's interesting. It's, I think it's going to become more engaging. I think we're going to see more and more of that. Although, of course, we do see the pushback when it's that whole, oh, so many people are writing this industry poetry and they don't understand anything about real poetry. It's like, yeah, okay, that's nice. But yeah, I think it might change. I'd like to see it change. Yeah, I think of poetry as like um, basically writing concentrated. Um, it's like concentrate orange juice, you know, <laughs> the frozen stuff. <laughs> to me, that's poetry. So uh, I actually, my first book that I wrote, 
uh, was about a, a songwriter, a singer-songwriter oh. trying to become a rock star. And of course I had to write some poetry for that, mm. um, some song lyrics. And I found that to be the most challenging part of writing the book, um, just because I'm, it's not, it doesn't come naturally to me. And I also wanted to show growth between the beginning lyrics and, you know, her arc is supposed to that she, you know, she finds her voice and, you know, comes into her own. So I had to try to write good poetry at the end. And that was the hardest I'm laughing part. because it's that sort of, not only did you write the novel, but you actually also wrote poetry and a progression of poetry, lyrical poetry within the story. That's just, it's quite incredible. I don't know how <laughs> successful it was, but, but it, it was an interesting challenge. Did, did you have yeah. to do anything in particular, um, Karen, in order to kind of approach that differently from your process with the with the prose? Oh, definitely. I had to think about all the kind of words that didn't need to be there and really try and distill the idea that I was trying to put across into a little nugget of frozen concentrated words to just like pack it all into this one tiny little and I didn't write out the whole song because you know it's a novel about uh you know a, a songwriter so I didn't need to give the entire song thankfully I just wrote you know a couple of verses and a lyric and a, a chorus but yes no it was it was very challenging one of the ways that I went about it just because I'm not a natural poet um was to think of a, a, a song that I uh, loved and to try to sort of adapt it into the poetry that I was trying. So anyway, I don't, I don't know how successful it was, but. Yeah. Yeah. No, poetry is interesting. There are some, there are some quite good ones out there. The, the horror poets are very good lately. If you've seen them on Twitter, the um, haiku horror prompt and, hi, and horror prompt, the, the poets that are coming out of that are really good. Mm. That might suit people better because it's a sort of genre based poetry so mm -hmm. as opposed to the whole oh it's all about moonlight and and flex wings of doves it's actually like i just want to chop you up into small pieces <laughs> but, but poetically so but poetically <laughs> ever poetic yes ever poetically <laughs> i love your sense of humor <laughs> a, a little drabble of murder <laughs> i've actually just read an excellent um book of haiku which was said it was haiku from a serial killer, I think it was. And they, they, it was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And the reviews at the end, I haven't realized straight away, but they'd done these, these mock reviews with the names of serial killers. And I was reading it thinking, that's a bit, that's a strange reaction to a review. And one of them said, it's put me right off my dinner. And it was whatever his name is that liked to eat his victims. I forgot what Oh, Dahmer. Was. Dahmer. Jeffrey yes, Dahmer. It was. It was. And I was thinking, oh. And then it was like, oh, oh, of course. And it was absolutely. That's very clever. That's tiny That's absolutely funny. brilliant. Really, really good. Yeah, haiku of a serial killer. <laughs> I was quite impressed. <laughs> for yeah, for your poetry uh, collections, mm. did you use a developmental editor in that regard too, or is that just all pure? No, like, I use. A, just... I have a poetry. I have critique swap. I have a mm. an editor who is also a poet, and he runs through it. But he, I think, the poetry is very difficult um it, it, it's really more about does it scan other words other is there a certain word that you know means something but other people won't I think it's that sort of thing you can't really it, it's, a, it's a lot different it's a different it's a really different process um mostly it's that sort of the order doesn't really work this one doesn't really fit mood wise 
Um, and yeah, the odd word. I think it's much more of a light touch element with, with poetry. But I mean, also, I mean, I've been doing it for a long time. So I think I'm, I'm fairly arrogant about my poetry. You've, you've earned the right, I'm I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so you said yeah, you started. I don't, I don't worry about it. You started at sixteen to write poetry. I started writing at sixteen. Yeah. What uh, is that? It. I think of a typical sort of teenage years filled with dreams and angst and uh, pouring out onto the paper. Is that kind of a start for you, or did you find that there was another another trigger that allowed you to kind of reach into that realm? Um, yeah, I had a, I mean, I was, yes, yeah, lots of angst, definitely lots of angst. I was, um, I discovered, I'm trying to think who I started, started to read. There was a few poets that I started reading as a kid, and I think it tipped me into it, um, obviously from literature days and the rest of it. And, and Auden was one of them, W.H. Auden. Mm -hmm. And it really just opened me up into this something that you could write. And, but yeah, I started writing, I did write a lot of angsty. Definitely. <laughs> I don't have any of it. There's only one that I ever kept. Well, I didn't keep it. I just remembered it, which is why I, from Love, Lost and Found, that that's based, that my that's my second collection, Love, Lost and Found. And that's actually based around that poem because I was asking, why do we even bother to love? Because it's just a complete yoke. And, and it was my effort at trying to explain it back. So it's that, it's, it's quoting the poem. So it's Love, Lost love found, love passed its cell by date. And so it's it's going back to it and explaining it. Just myself as a 40 odd year old, explains that 16 year old self, what I think I know or possibly know. But yeah, otherwise no, it's definitely angsty. But I think there's a, there's a process, there's a catharsis with that because as a teenager, it's the only time when our brains are going through so much change, but we also have enough time to think about those things. And we don't anymore i mean we, we still have those processes and each time we you know we turn a round age or big things happen grief but we don't stop and and do some really good navel gazing i don't know why we don't do that we just we just don't do we so i think that's that helps and so a lot of people sort of really denigrate teenage poetry and they say they know nothing it's like well no there's lots of things they don't know but they're actually really good at soul searching and that's there's a lot of beauty in that i think but yeah yeah for me that's the stuff that touches me the most when it's something that's a common human experience that we all have felt but you put it into words beautifully or I felt like you saw me just like that reader um that must have been so gratifying for you to yeah. to have him and to have him share it with his partner and say yeah. this is how you understand me I yeah. suspect that must have felt just wonderful for you yeah, it was it was absolutely fantastic. I think it is. I think that's something with poetry more than any other genre that you can really touch somebody in just a few word verses. But I do think a lot of people think poets really do have it together. I think I get this impression that people do think we're just effortlessly stylish. We're just so cool. We can that we are so good at speaking and talking because we write this beautiful poetry. <laughs> it's it's not true, and and that's something that people just don't get. It's just like yeah, we can write beautiful poetry. Um, because we're still just struggling through life just the same way as everybody else is. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, a <laughs> life calling. We haven't become more evolved human beings or something. Sadly, well, I haven't. I missed the boat. If they did, I still haven't got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if when you're writing uh, prose, 
what lessons do you take from your ability to write poetry and apply to your prose? I'm thinking maybe imagery, but I'm curious about your thoughts. Well, I'm, I have aphantasia. I don't know if you're familiar with aphantasia. Aphantasia um, is when you do not have a visual imagination. You can't see oh. anything within oh. your own brain. Okay. So, <laughs> I know a lot of people often say, how can you possibly have aphantasia and be a poet? And I say, do you think a blind poet is not a poet? And they're mm. blind in my head doesn't mean that I'm, I can't write. I do use a lot of imagery, but I think the advantage I have is that because of writing, because I know what impact words have, I don't go into purple prose. I never go into purple prose. I keep it very, very spare more spare if it's very very tragic i really just throw it out on the page um mm -hmm. but i do use imagery but carefully mm -hmm. it's none of this um the, the, the pale gasping and it's just it's just too much and it takes people out and you can let people just see it mm -hmm. with a few phrases rather than something else but i have been told a few times that some of my prose goes poetic at times so it's it's definitely in there mm -hmm. i think offer can tell me otherwise tell me if that's the case because <laughs> he's reading the sunset sovereign That's is it right, the case yeah. um you know in a way yes nothing that i would identify i think as as sort of poetry jumping off the page in terms of the way you've described it but more in the oddly enough in the way you color the scene for oh. me there's there's a there's a light there that i'm i'm reading along that i don't know it just it's more subconscious than anything that I can kind of mentally grab on, which is really neat. It, uh, it allows me to, to visualize the way the story is unfolding in my own way, given the cues you've given me, which I think is kind of what we're all wanting to do for the most part, yeah. in, instead of being too rigid in the structure. Yeah, yeah, I think it does help because it's that very much, you don't need it. You don't need to have too much of it you can have a little less and it still works perfectly well. And I think that's 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 how I always handle it. Yeah, less is more. I find that with emotion for characters as well. Um, when I first started thinking about writing, I thought if I had my character break down in tears a lot that it would cause the reader to, you know, feel their pain or, uh, connect uh, from an empathetic point of view but the more I read about the craft and how to elicit emotion I learned that the less the more your character holds it in and is strong um, and you know does the right thing in the moment the and as long as the reader understands the stakes for them and how sad it is for them it actually causes the reader to feel more emotion if the character is constantly wailing and gnashing their teeth then um I as a reader I kind of feel like well they're doing it for me I don't I don't feel as invested yeah yeah you you want to seek something out we we like mysteries don't we people you have to leave something for a mystery for them to try and work out so yeah. that's a show don't tell thing isn't it? I suppose all over again but yeah let's leave them a little bit of mystery and it almost Karen from what you were saying it almost um allows for a sense of some disingenuousness in and around the character if it's always being done that way it leaves me to wonder how how real is this is this just for show um mm -hmm. as opposed to really getting a sense of it a deep emotion that isn't necessarily all you know bled out there for the for the reader to read 
So it's such a balance. (laughs) It's such a balance. Oh, it's so tricky. Yeah. Um, What was I going to ask you? Was there something that you wanted to to read with us today? I can. It's up to you. What about you, Karen? Did you want to hear anything particular? Oh, sure. I'd love to hear a poem from Erin if she has some poem. All right, let's see what I've got. Let's see if I can find fever now or something. I'm trying to figure out what I've got in here. This one's at Love Lost and Found that I'm pulling up, putting up. So I'm quite good, quite good one for, for some poetry. I'll see if I can find something. The other one's a bit more too dark, perhaps. Yeah, I'm going to read, if I'll, I'd like to read Ashes in the Wind. And this one's actually about my father. He's got a very funny story to do with it. My father's from Northern Ireland, and when he died, he asked me to scatter his ashes. So myself and my brother and a few friends went over to scatter him um, up on the moors, very windy. And we did this thing, we had the box and everything, and we did this, this very nice uh, dedication to him. And we scattered, and then the wind changed, and he started chasing us down the road. <laughs> and and I, I was watching, and all these figures literally screaming, and they're being smothered by this the ash. My my brother's my brother's um not not the runner type, but he was sprinting up the road very much like Bomber did in the Hobbit. It was the fastest. He was just gone, <laughs> and we were covered from head to toe. We were covered in this ash, and they were we were sitting in the pub, and everybody was feeling quite um, dishevelled and some somewhat traumatised. And they were saying, "Which bit have I got on me? What what bit is it?" And I'm like, "There's just no point in even worrying about it. I mean, it's just done." But it was very very funny, and it's always stayed with me. And I, I picked up a, a phrase somewhere, and it was "ashes in the wind," and it reminded me of that. And I thought I'm going to write a poem about that. So it is very very funny, but it's also it's that sort of remembrance for me of it. So that's that's one I'll read. Um, I can smell the moor, the green. I can hear the wind humming cold. I can remember the day in Oma when we travelled together by plane, all gathering from different corners of the great green globe for this. And there was I carrying you in an anonymous square box, your paperwork tucked in snugly by air and car and we walked to the moors. We stopped and we deliberated. Your wishes were, take me home, pet, take me home, bury me in Scotland, bury me in Ireland, scatter me there, take me to my homeland, let me seek the Irish winds. I regret that I never had a lesson and scattering ashes into wind, I was nonplussed, unaware of the proprietary of such a thing, so we improvised. I called to you, we told you we were finally letting you go to the wind, and I released you, your body, that became an errant grey cloud, meeting a mischievous Irish wind. You flew so high and focused into a nebulous, hulking shape, shifting into purpose as the wind started and changed and back, chasing your mourners up the road as they sprinted, laughing hysterically from a pursuing ash cloud that followed them relentlessly. I did not run. I collected your ash on my coat, on my hair and my skin as I walked away from those moors from the place you called home. I kept those parts that you meant for me, for us. We breathed them in on our desperate laughing fight and I fancy still that you laughed as you flew past so fast that your formidable strength fell into ashes and wind. Gorgeous. Oh, thank you. That's really nice. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I was... I'm really sorry for the loss of your father, but uh, what dark humor you were able to find commemorating him. Yeah, I still laugh about it. It's, it's a long time now. It's good. It's been a good decade, but yeah, I still it's in my one. It's like the most memorable. 
it's a it's a great story to go with it too i think it's a it's lovely to be able to remember with some laughter yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah yeah that's that was most stuff my poetry and hopefully not too opaque <laughs> not at all no i followed it completely mm -hmm. so um, in uh in kind of getting close to closing things up together. Uh, I wanted to ask you if you had any uh, any takeaway advice for aspiring writers who may be listening, our one listener out there. I think, I think it's about just about finding your voice first and foremost. I don't think, I think people need to, to balance the, the, the two. You've got to find your voice and have confidence in your own writing voice, but you also need to, keep working on that craft and improving it and it's it's always the, the it, you've got to find the line between it so it's not just about my voice is all at night and I will write it and it will be a masterpiece but also not trying to take everything from everybody else and project it together I think that's the the key for me mm -hmm. what do you think Helen yeah that makes complete sense to me yeah well, it's been a joy having you both. Um, thank you very much, Erin, for agreeing to be my inaugural guest for the show. And of course, my my co for the show today, Karen, I appreciate very much your time and um, for helping me kind of process the, the new episode into the world. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting with you, Erin. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> and, Thanks, Arthur. Uh, Thank you both, and we'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Yeah, Have a lovely day. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Bye. And that, as they say, is a wrap. My thanks once again to my co for the show, Karen Savage, and our wonderful guest, Erin McConnell. Erin's poetry collections and her new novel can be found on Amazon under the author name E.M. McConnell. Music for today's episode provided by Pixabay, with guest artists Monday Hopes and their track Orange Juice on the Table, Nature's Eye and their track Simple Piano, and Piano Amor with their track Into Myself. Our theme is called Mr. Mischief and is by all good folks provided by Upbeats. And many thanks to you, our listener, for spending some time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the follow button and swing by the speakeasy again, where there's always a table waiting just for you. Cheers. <laughs>